84. Scholar. Midas once told me, told me we could use investiture to enhance our minds, our memories, so we wouldn't forget so much. Raboniel made good on her promise to leave Novani to her own designs. The fused studied the shield that protected the sibling, but without Navani to accidentally act as a spy, Raboniel's progress wasn't nearly as rapid as before. Occasionally, when pacing so she could glance out past the guard, Navani would catch Raboniel sitting on the floor beside the blue shield, holding up the sphere full of warlight and staring at it. Navani found herself in a curious situation. Forbidden to take part in the administration of the tower, forbidden direct contact with her scholars, she had only her research to occupy her. In a way, she had been given the gift she'd always wished for, a chance to truly see if she could become a scholar. Something had always prevented her from full dedication. After Gavilar's death, she'd been too busy guiding Elokar and then Esudan. Perhaps Navani could have focused on scholarship when she'd first come to the Shattered Plains, but there had been a Blackthorn to seduce and then a new kingdom to forge. For all she complained about politics and the distractions of administering a kingdom, she certainly did find her way into the middle of both with frightful regularity. Perhaps Navani should go do menial labor. At least that way she'd be among the people and wouldn't risk doing any more damage. Except, Raboniel would certainly never let her go around unsupervised. Plus, the lure of unknown secrets called to Navani. She had information Raboniel did not. Navani had seen a sphere that warped air, filled with what seemed to be some kind of anti-void light. She knew about the explosion. The thing Raboniel wanted to create was possible. So why not try to find out how to make it? Why not see what she could actually do? The power to destroy a god. Negative light. Can I crack the secret? What if Navani was thinking too small in trying to save the tower? What if there was a way to end the war once and for all? What if Navani really could find a way to destroy Odium? She needed to try, but how to even start? Well, the best way to encourage discoveries from her scholars was usually to cultivate the proper environment and attitude. Keep them studying, keep them experimenting. Oftentimes, the greatest discoveries came not because a woman was looking for them, but because she was so engrossed in some other topic that she started making connections she never would have otherwise. So, over the next few days, Navani tried to replicate this state in herself. She ordered parts, supplies, fabrile mechanisms, some all the way from Kulinar, and they were delivered without a word of complaint. That included, most importantly, many gemstones bearing corrupted spren to power fabrials. To warm up, she spent time creating weapons that wouldn't look like weapons. Traps she could use, if she grew truly desperate, to defend her room or the pillar room. She wasn't certain how she would deploy them, 
or if she would need to. For now, it was something scholarly to do, something familiar, and she threw herself wholeheartedly into the work. She hid pain rails inside other fabrials, constructed to appear innocuous. She made alarms to distract, using technology they'd discovered from the gemstones left by the old radiance in Eurythiru. She used conjoined rubies to make spring traps that would release spikes. She put void light spheres in her fabrile traps, then set them to be armed by a simple trick, a magnet against the side of the cube, in precisely the right place, would move a metal lever and arm the traps. This way they wouldn't activate until she needed them. She had these boxes stored out in the hallway, as if they were half-completed experiments she intended to return to in a few days. The space was already lined with boxes from the other scholars, so Navani's additions didn't feel out of place. Afterward, she had Raboniel help her make more warlight for experiments. Navani couldn't create it by herself, unfortunately. No combination of tuning forks or instruments replicated Raboniel's presence. But so far as Navani could tell, the fused also couldn't create it without a human's help. Navani got better at humming the tone, mastering the rhythm. In those moments, she felt as if she could hear the very soul of Rochar speaking to her. She'd never been particularly interested in music, but, like her growing obsession with light, she found it increasingly fascinating. Waves, sounds, and what they meant for science. Underlying all the work she did was a singular question. How would one make the opposite of void light? What had been in that sphere of Gavilar's? In Voronism, pure things were said to be symmetrical, and all things had an opposite. It was easy to see why Raboniel had assumed the dark light of the void would be the opposite of stormlight. But darkness wasn't truly an opposite of light. It was simply the absence of light. She needed some way to measure investiture, the power in a gemstone. And she needed some kind of model, a form of energy that she knew had an opposite. What things in nature had a provable, measurable opposite? Magnets, she said, pushing aside her chair and standing up from her notes. She walked up to the guard at her chamber door. I need more magnets, stronger ones this time. We kept some in the chemical supplies storehouse on the second floor. The guard hummed a tone and accompanied it with a long-suffering sigh for Navani's benefit. He glanced around for support, but the only other singer nearby was Raboniel's daughter, who sat outside the room with her back to the wall, holding a sword across her lap and staring off into the distance while humming. It wasn't a rhythm, Navani realized, but a tune she recognized, a human one sung sometimes at taverns. How did the fused know it? I suppose I can see it done, the guard said to Navani, though some of our people are growing annoyed by your persistent demands. Take it up with Raboniel, Navani said, walking to her seat. Oh, and the fused use some kind of weapon that draws stormlight out of radiance they stab. Get me some of that metal. 
I'll need the Lady of Wishes to approve that, the guard said. Then ask her. Go on. I'm not going to run off. Where do you think I'd go? The guard, a storm-form regal, grumbled and moved off to do as she asked. Navani had teased out a few things about him during her incarceration. He'd been a Parshman slave in the palace at Kolinar. He thought she should recognize him and, well, perhaps she should. Parshman had always been so invisible, though. She tried a different experiment while she waited. She had two halves of a conjoined ruby on the desk. That meant a split gemstone and a split spren, divided right through the center. She was trying to see if she could use the tuning fork method to draw out the halves of the spren and rejoin them in a larger ruby. She thought that might please the sibling, who still wouldn't talk to her. She put a magnifying lens on one half of the gemstone and watched as the spren within reacted to the tuning fork. This was a corrupted flame spren. That shouldn't change the nature of the experiment, or so she hoped. It was moving in there, trying to reach the sound. It pressed against the wall of the gemstone, but couldn't escape. Stormlight can leak through micro-holes in the structure, Navani thought. But the spren is too large. A short time later, someone stepped up to the doorway. Navani noticed the darkening light of someone moving in front of the lamp. My magnets? Navani asked, holding out her hand while still peering at the spren. Bring them here. Not the magnets, Raboniel said. Lady of wishes, Navani said, turning and bowing from her seat. I apologize for not recognizing you. Raboniel hummed a rhythm Navani couldn't distinguish, then walked over to inspect the experiment. I'm trying to rejoin a split spren, Navani explained. Past experience shows that breaking a gemstone in half lets the flame spren go. But in that case, the two halves grow into separate flame spren. I'm trying to see if I can merge them back together. Raboniel placed something on the desk, a small dagger, ornate, with an intricately carved wooden handle and a large ruby set at the base. Navani picked it up, noting that the center of the blade, running like a vein from tip to hilt, was a different kind of metal than the rest. We use these for collecting the souls of heralds, Raboniel noted. Or that was the plan. We've taken a single one so far, and there have been complications with that capture. I had hoped to harvest the two you reportedly had here, but they left with your expeditionary force. Navani flipped the weapon over, feeling cold. We've used this metal for several returns to drain stormlight from radiance, Raboniel said. It conducts investiture drawing it from a source and pulling it inward. We used it to fill gemstones, but didn't realize until the fall of Ba'edom Mishram that capturing spren in gemstones was possible. It was then that one of us, she who dreams, realized it might be possible to trap a herald's soul in the same way. Navani licked her lips. So it was true. 
Shalash had told them Yezereza Ilin had fallen. They hadn't realized how. This was better than absolute destruction, though. Could he be recovered this way? What will you do with their souls? Navani asked. Once you have them. Same thing you've done with the soul of Nergaul, Raboniel said. Put them somewhere safe, so they can never be released again. Why did you want this metal? The guard told me you'd asked after it. I thought, Navani said, this might be a better way to conduct stormlight and voidlight, to transfer it out of gemstones. It would work, Raboniel said, but it isn't terribly practical. Raisium is exceptionally difficult to obtain. She nodded to the dagger she'd given Navani. That specific weapon you should know contains only a small amount of the metal, not enough to harvest the herald's soul. It would not therefore be of any danger to me, should you consider trying such an act. Understood, ancient one, Navani said. I want it only for my experiments, thank you. She touched the tip of the dagger, with the white gold metal, to one half of the divided ruby. Nothing happened. Generally, you need to stab someone with it for it to work, Raboniel said. You need to touch the soul. Navani nodded absently, resetting her equipment with the tuning fork and the magnifying lens, then watching the spren inside move to the sound. She set the tip of the dagger against it again, watching for any different behavior. You seem to be enjoying yourself, Raboniel noted. I would enjoy myself more if my people were free, Lady of Wishes, Navani said. But I intend to use this time to some advantage. Their defense of the tower, frail though it was, had utterly collapsed. She couldn't reach Kaladin, hear the sibling, or plan with her scholars. There was only one node left to protect the heart of the tower from corruption. Navani had a solitary hope remaining that she could imitate a scholar well enough to build a new weapon, a weapon to kill a god. In her experiment, nothing happened. The spren couldn't get out of the ruby, even with the tone calling it. The spren was vivid blue as it was corrupted and appeared as half a spren, one arm, one leg. Why continue to manifest that way? Flame spren often changed forms, and they were infamous for noticing they were being watched. Navani had read some very interesting essays on the topic. She picked up a small jeweler's hammer. Carefully, she cracked the half ruby, letting the spren escape. It sprang free, but was immediately captured by the dagger. Light traveled along the blade. Then the ruby at the base began to glow. Navani confirmed that the half spren was inside. Interesting. Navani thought. So, what if I break the other half of the ruby and capture that half in the same gemstone? Excited, she reached to grab the other half of the ruby. But when she moved it, the dagger skidded across the table. Navani froze. The two halves of the spren were still conjoined? She'd expected that to end once the original imprisonment did. Curious, she moved the dagger. The other half of the ruby flew out several feet toward the center of the room. Too far. 
much too far. She'd moved the dagger half a foot, while the paired ruby had moved three times as far. Navani stared at the hovering ruby, her eyes wide. Raboniel hummed a loud rhythm, looking just as startled. How? she asked. Is it because the spren is corrupted? Possibly, Navani said, though I've been experimenting with the conjoined spren, and corrupted ones seem to generally behave the same as uncorrupted ones. She eyed the dagger. The gemstone on the dagger is larger than the one it was in before. Always before, you had to split a gemstone in two equal halves to conjoin them. Perhaps by moving one half to a larger gemstone, I have created something new. Force multiplication? Raboniel asked. Move a large gemstone a short distance and cause the small gemstone to go a very long one? Energy will be conserved, if our understanding of Fabrial laws is correct, Navani said. Greater light will be required, and moving the larger gemstone will be more difficult in equivalency to the work done by the smaller gemstone. But storms, the implications. Write this down, Raboniel said. Record your observations. I will do the same. Why? Navani asked. The rhythm of war, Navani, Raboniel said as an explanation though it didn't seem one to Navani. Do it, and continue your experiments. I will, she said. But Lady of Wishes, I'm running into another problem. I need a way to measure the strength of stormlight in a gemstone. Raboniel didn't press for details. There is sand that does this, she said. Sand? It is black, naturally but turns white in the presence of stormlight. It can therefore be used to measure the strength of investiture. The more powerful the source of power nearby, the quicker the sand changes. I will get some for you. She hummed loudly. This is amazing, Navani. I don't think I've known a scholar so capable, not in many returns. I'm not a... Navani trailed off. Thank you, she said instead. 85. Dabbit. Why would I want to remember? Dabbit had been different all his life. That was the word his mother had used. Different. He liked that word. I didn't try to pretend. Something was different about him. He had been six when he started talking. He still couldn't do adding in his head. He could follow instructions, but he forgot steps if they were too long. He was different. The surgeons hadn't been able to say the reason. They said some people are just different. He was always going to be like this. The midwife, when she heard about him later, said the cord was wrapped around his neck when he was born. Maybe that was why. When he'd been young, Dabbit had tried putting a rope around his neck to see how it felt. He hadn't jumped off a ledge. He hadn't tied the other end to anything. He hadn't tried to die. He'd just tightened it a little so he could know what baby Dabbit had felt. When someone saw, everyone had panicked. They called him stupid. 
They took ropes away from him for years. They thought he was too dumb to know it would hurt him. He often got into trouble like that, doing things others wouldn't, not understanding it would make people panic. He had to be very careful not to make regular people frightened. They liked to be scared of him. He did not know why. He was different, but not scary different. It had gotten worse when his mother died. People had become meaner on that day. It wasn't his fault. He hadn't even been there. But suddenly everyone was meaner. He ended up at war, serving a light eyes, washing his clothing. When a dark-eyed baby was born to the man's wife, everyone had gotten angry at Dabid. He'd explained that they were wrong. Everybody was wrong sometimes. It hadn't been until much later that he'd realized the bright lady had lied, to punish someone other than her secret lover. He could understand things if he had time to think about them. Sometimes. He'd ended up running bridges. Dabbitt didn't remember much from that time. He'd lost track of the days. He'd barely spoken back then. He had been confused. He had been frightened. He had been angry. But he didn't let people know he was angry. People got scared and hurt him when he was angry. He'd done his job, terrified more each day, certain he would die. In fact, he'd figured he must already be dead. So when a horse, from one of Sadius's own soldiers, had all but trampled him, shoving him and hurling him to the ground, his arm broken, he'd curled up and waited to die. Then, Kaladin. Kaladin storm-blessed. He hadn't cared that Dabid was different. He hadn't cared that Dabid had given up. Kaladin hauled him out of damnation and gave him another family. Dabid couldn't quite recall when he'd started to come out of his battle shock. He hadn't ever really lost it. Who could? People clapping sounded like bowstrings snapping. Footfalls sounded like hooves. Or he'd hear singing, like the Parshendi, and he was there again, dying. Still, he had started to feel better. Somewhere along the way, he'd started to feel like his old self. Except he'd had a new family. He'd had friends. And none of them had known he was different. Well, they thought he was another kind of different. They thought he had been hurt by the battle, like all of them. He was one of them. They hadn't known about his mind, how he'd been born. He didn't like it when people used the word stupid for the way he was. People called one another stupid when they made mistakes. Dabid wasn't a mistake. He could make mistakes. Then he was stupid. But not always. He couldn't think fast like others. But that made him different, not stupid. Stupid was a choice. In the past, his speech had told people he was different. He'd figured that out when he was moving from job to job after his mother died. When he'd spoken, they'd known. So, with Bridge Four, he'd just kept on not speaking. That way, they wouldn't know. That way, they wouldn't realize he was dabid different. He could just be Bridge Four different. 
Then everyone had started getting spren, except him. And then the tower had started talking to him, and he still wasn't certain if he'd done something stupid or not. But going to Relaine, that hadn't been stupid. He was certain of it. So today he tried not to think about his mistakes. He tried not to think about how if he'd been stronger he could have helped Kaladin fight. He tried not to think about how he'd lied to the others by pretending he couldn't speak. He tried to focus on what he could do to help. He led Relaine up through the tunnels. They met singers a couple of times. Relaine talked, his voice calm with rhythms, and the singers let them go. They went up and up, and Dabid showed him a hidden stairwell. They snuck past the guard patrols on the sixth floor. Up and up, Dabid's heart thumped, worrying. Would Lift meet them like she'd promised? Lift knew the tower better than they did. She said she could make it on her own. But would she run away? When they reached the meeting place on the tenth floor, they found her waiting. She sat on the ground, eating some curry and bread. Where did you get that? Relaine asked. Fused, she said, gesturing. Funny. They need to eat. Suppose that means they poop, right? I suppose, Relaine said, sounding disapproving. Ain't that a kick in the bits? Lift asked. You get made immortal, you can live through the centuries, you can fly or walk through rock or something like that, but you still gotta piss like everyone else. I don't see the point of this conversation, Relaine said. Hurry, we need to get to Kaladin. Lift rolled her eyes in an exaggerated way, then stood up and handed Dabid some flatbread. He nodded in thanks and tucked it away for later. When did you start talking? Lift asked him. I was six, he said. Mom said. No, I mean, she gestured at him. Dabbitt felt himself blush, and he looked at his feet. I could for a long time. Just didn't. Didn't want to talk? I've never felt like that. Except this once when I ate the queen's dinner, but it had been sitting out, see, and she didn't put it away like she should have. It's her fault, I told her, because it's like leaving a sword out where a baby could step on it and cut up her foot or something. Can we please keep moving? Relaine demanded. Dabbitt led them the rest of the way. He felt more anxious now. Was he too late? Had Kaladin died while he was gone? Was he too slow to help? Too different to have realized earlier what he should have done? Dabbitt led them to the place on the eleventh floor, but the door had stopped working. It had been too long since Kaladin infused it. They had lift, though, and when she pressed her hand to the gemstone, the door opened. It smelled of sweat and blood in there. Dabbitt hurried past the place where Teft lay unconscious, reaching Kaladin. On the floor, wrapped in blankets, thrashing. Still alive. Still alive. Storms, Lift said, stepping over. Kaladin's face was coated in sweat. His teeth were gritted, his eyes squeezed shut. He flailed in his blankets, growling softly. Dabbitt had cut off his shirt to look for wounds. While there were scabs all along Kaladin's side, the worst part was the infection. It spread across the skin from the cut. A violent redness, hateful, covered in little rotspren. Lift stepped back, wrapping her arms around herself. Storms. I've never seen a fever like that, Renane said, towering over the two of them. Did he know how large he was in war form? Have you? Lift shook her head. Please, 
Dabbard said. Please help. Lift held out her hand, palm forward, and burst alight with power. Stormlight rose from her skin like white smoke, and she knelt. She shied away as Kaladin thrashed again, then she lunged forward and pressed her hand to his chest. The redness immediately retreated, and the rotspren fled as if they couldn't stand the presence of her touch. Kaladin's back arched. He was hurting. Then he collapsed into the blankets. Lift pressed her other hand against his side, and the wound continued to heal, the redness fleeing. She furred her brow and bit her lip. Dabid did the same. Maybe it would help. She pushed so much stormlight into Kaladin, he started glowing himself. When she sat back, the scabs flaked off his side, leaving smooth new skin. That was hard, she whispered. Even harder than when I saved Gox. She wiped her brow. I'm sweating. Thank you, Dabbit said, taking her hand. Ew, she said. Oh, it was the hand she'd just used to wipe her head. Thank you he said. She shrugged. My awesomeness, the slippery part, doesn't work anymore. But this does. Wonder why. Relaine went to close the door. Dabbit tried to make Kaladin comfortable, bunching up a blanket to make a pillow. His friend was still unconscious, but sleeping peacefully now. I have a lot of questions, Dabbit, Relaine said. First off, why have you been keeping quiet when you could speak? I... You don't gotta say nothing if you don't wanna, Lift said. She'd found their rations already and was eating. Wow. He's bridge four, Relaine said. We're family. Family doesn't lie to one another. I'm sorry, Dabbit said softly. I just didn't want you to know I'm different. We're all different, Relaine said, folding his arms. Storms, he was so frightening in carapace armor. I'm more different, Dabbit said. I, I was born different. You mean born, you know, an idiot, Relaine said. Dabbit winced. He hated that word, though Relaine didn't use it hatefully. It was just a word to him. Touched, Lift said. I know lots of kids like him on the street. They don't think the same way as everyone else. It happens. It happens, Dabbit agreed. It happened to me. But you didn't know. So you couldn't treat me like I was wrong. You know, about being extra different. Right, Relaine? I guess I do, he said. You shouldn't feel that you have to hide what you are, though. I will be fixed, Dabbit said when I get a spren. Becoming radiant will heal me, because my brain isn't supposed to be like this. I was hurt after I was born. The tower said so. The tower? Relaine asked. The tower can talk, Lift said. It's a spren. And it promised to heal you, Dabbit? He nodded, though it hadn't said that in so many words. He wondered now if it had been lying. The queen hadn't been pleased by how he'd snuck around doing tasks for the sibling. Maybe he should be more suspicious, even of Spren. But someday, when he was radiant...
Relaine dug out a new set of blankets for Kaladin from the pile. Dabbit had washed those earlier, as he'd wanted something to do. They got Kaladin untangled from the sweaty ones, then wrapped him in. What in storming damnation are you fools doing? A gruff voice said from behind them. Dabbit froze, then turned around slowly. Lift was perched on the end of Teft's shelf, absently munching on a ration bar. Soulcast grain, cooked and pressed. She was pulling her hand back from Teft's exposed foot, stormlight curling off her body. Teft, in turn, was pushing himself up to sit. Teft was awake. Dabbit let out a whoop and leaped up. Relaine just started humming like he did sometimes. What? Lift said. Wasn't I supposed to heal the stinky one, too? Stinky, Teft said, looking under his blanket. Where in damnation are my clothes? What happened to me? We were at the tavern, right? Storms my head. You can wake the Radiance? Relaine asked, rushing over and seizing Lift by the arms. Why didn't you say something? Huh? She said. Look, Shellhead, I've been in a storming cage. My spren vanished, said he was going to try to get help, and I ain't heard from him since. Bet he joined the Voidbringers, storming traitor. I don't know what's been going on in the tower. What's wrong with the others? In a cage, Teft said. Why? And where are my storming clothes? There's a lot to explain, Teft, Relaine said. The tower is occupied by the enemy and... He stopped, then frowned, glancing toward Kaladin. Kaladin? Kaladin was stirring. They all hushed, even Teft. Kaladin blinked and opened his eyes. He grew tense, then saw Relaine and Dabbit and relaxed, taking a deep breath. Is this a dream? He whispered. Or am I finally awake? You're awake, Hal, Relaine said, kneeling to take Kaladin by the shoulder. Thank the purest tones. You're awake. It worked. Dabbit stepped back as Teft said something, causing Kaladin to sit up, then laugh in joy. It had worked. Dabbit wasn't radiant. He wasn't brave. He wasn't smart. But today, he hadn't been stupid either. Once, Kaladin had pulled Dabbit out of damnation itself. It felt good to return that act of heroism with a small one of his own. 86. The Song of Mornings One and a half years ago. As the war with the humans progressed, Venley became increasingly certain she'd made the correct decision. How could her people, after generations of stagnation, hope to stand by themselves in the world? If recent reports were true, the humans had surge binders again, like those spoken of in the songs. Ulim was right. A bigger war than this was coming. Venley's people needed to be prepared. Venley stood with folded arms, attuned to confidence, as she watched a listener warband return from a raid. Eshana and her soldiers had won the day, and they brought a large gem heart with them. Eshana herself delivered it up to Denshil, their head of farming. Her warriors didn't look like victors, bloody, wounded, their ancient weapons sagging in their grips as if weighted by ground spren. 
More than a few of the soldiers walked alone, war pairs who had lost a member. Venley watched with hidden glee. Surely they were close to breaking. If she could bring them a form of power, would they accept it? Venley remembered her hesitance and weakness when she'd started along this path years ago. She'd been technically a youth then, though fully grown. Now she was an adult. She saw as an adult did. She turned and cut through a side street of the ancient city, passing large creme-covered walls like tall ridges of natural stone. You'd have to cut deep with a shard blade to find the worked stone at the heart. This was the more direct way, so she was waiting as Denshill walked past with the gemstone. He was scrawny, even when wearing work form, and had a pattern of black and red skin that looked like true marble work, all rough and coarse. He jumped as he saw Venley. What are you doing? He hissed to anxiety as she walked along beside him. Acting naturally, she said. I'm head of our scholars. It's normal for me to visit our farmers and see how their work is progressing. He still acted nervous, but at least he attuned peace as they walked. It didn't matter. They passed few listeners on the streets. All who weren't absolutely needed as farmers, caretakers, or other essential workers had joined Eshonai. In a perfect bit of poetry, this ensured that the bravest of the listeners, those most likely to resist Venley when she brought them storm form, fought on the front lines each day, dying. Each corpse brought Venley one step closer to her goal. She'd stopped pretending this was only about protecting her people. As she'd grown into herself and become more confident, she decided what she truly wanted. True freedom, with the power to make certain she'd never have to be dependent upon anyone else, listener or spren. True freedom couldn't exist while someone else had power over you. So yes, her work was about helping her people, in part. But deep within her, where the rhythms began, Venley promised herself that she would be the one who obtained the most freedom. How goes your work? Venley asked to confidence. Denshill's rhythm slipped to anxiety again. Foolish farmer. He'd better not give them away. The others believe me, he said softly, and they should. I'm not saying anything that's a lie. Really? If we cut these gem hearts like the humans do, they hold more stormlight. But I don't mention the extra bits I cut off before delivering the faceted stone to the fields. How much have you saved? Several hundred gemstones. I need more, Venley said. He blatantly attuned irritation. More? What crazy rhythm are you listening to? We need one for every listener in the city. I can't, he said. If you, you can, Venley said to reprimand. And you will. Cut the gemstones smaller. Give less to the fields. And if we end up starving because of it, gemstones break, you know, when you sing to them. We will run out. We won't live long enough to starve, Denshill. Not if the humans get here. Not if they find your children and take away their songs. The Malin attuned longing immediately. The listener had few children these days, 
Most had stopped taking mate form years ago, and they had never been as feckin' to people as the humans apparently were. Think how you could improve, Venley said. For them, Denshill. For your daughter. We should bring this to the five, he said. We will. You can watch me bring the proposal to them. This will be done properly. You and I are simply preparing the way. He nodded, and Venley let him rush on ahead to the ancient building where he practiced gem cutting, an art Ulim had taught him. Say a name on the breeze and it will return, she thought, noting a red light glowing from within an old abandoned building. They'd had to cut the window out to get to the structure inside. She strolled over, and Ulim stepped out onto the windowsill, invisible to everyone but those he chose. You've learned to lie very well, he said to subservience. I have, she said. Are we ready? Close, he said. I feel the storm on the other side. I think it's nearly here. You think? Venley demanded. I can't see into shades, Mar, he snapped to derision. She didn't quite understand his explanations of what was happening. But she knew a storm was mounting in Shadesmar. In fact, the storm had been building for generations, growing in fury, intensity. It barred the way to damnation. That storm was where Ulim had originally come from. There were also thousands of another kind of spren in the storm. Storm spren, mindless things, like wind spren or flame spren. Venley had to find a way to pull those storms spread across and capture them. To that end, a large portion of the roiling storm had been broken off by the god of gods, the ancient one called Odium. This storm was his strength, his essence. Over painful months, he'd moved the storm across the landscape, unseen, until it arrived here. Kind of. Almost. What will happen, Venley asked to curiosity, when my storm comes to this world? Your storm? I am the one who summons it, Spren, she said. It is mine. Sure, sure, he said, a little too quickly, and with too many hand gestures. He had grown obsequious over the last few years and liked to pretend that his betrayal of her in the Kolinar Palace had never happened. When this storm comes, you will serve me, Venley said. I serve you now, barely. Promise it. You'll serve me. I will serve, he said. I promise it, Venley. But we have to bring the storm's friend to this side first, and persuade the listeners to take the forms. The second will not be a problem. You're too certain about that, he said. Remember they killed the Alethi king to prevent this from happening. Traitors. He got hung up on that idea. Though he'd been the one to whisper about the location of the slave with the honor blade, and he'd agreed to help start a war to make her people desperate, he could not get over the reasoning her people had used. Ulim hadn't found out about Eshonai's experience with King Gavilar until weeks later, and he'd been livid. 
How dare the listeners do exactly what he wanted, but for the wrong reason? Foolish little spren. Venley attuned skepticism and almost felt something different, something more, a better rhythm, right outside her reach. Focus less on that, Venley said, and more on your duties. Yes, Venley, he said, voice cooing as he spoke to subservience. You're going to be amazed by the power you get from storm form. And the massive storm you'll bring through? It will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Odium's raw power, blowing across the world in the wrong direction. It will devastate the humans, leave them broken and easily conquered, ripe for your domination, Venli. Enough, she said. Don't sell it so hard, Ulim. I'm not the child you found when you first arrived here. Do your job and get the storm into position. I'll capture the storm, Spren. How, though? How? They are the Spren of storms, right? Well, a storm, Ulim said. In the past, they mostly spent their time inside gem hearts. Odium would directly bless the singer, making them a kind of royalty. They didn't really wander about much. Royalty? She liked the sound of that. She smiled, imagining how Esh and I would act toward her then. My scholars are confident, Venli said. From what you've told them and the experiments we've done with other kinds of spren, we think if we can gather a small collection of storm spren in gemstones, others will get pulled through more easily. But we need that initial seed, Ulim said. How? She nodded to the sky where her imaginings had brought forth a glory spren, an enormous, brilliant sphere with wings along the sides. Those pop in when we think the proper thoughts, feel the right things. So, what brings storm spren? A storm, Ulim said. It might work, worth trying. They'd have to experiment. Even with his help, it had taken several tries to figure out nimble form, and that was a relatively easy form. Still, she was pleased with their progress. Yes, it had taken far, far longer than she'd anticipated. But over those many years, she'd become the person she was now. Confident, like her younger self had never been. She turned to make her way toward where her scholars studied the songs, written in the script she'd devised. Unfortunately, she soon spotted a tall, armored figure heading her direction. Venli immediately turned down a side road, but Eshenai called to her. Venli attuned irritation. Eshenai would follow her if she hurried on, so she slowed and turned. Venli's sister looked so strange in shard plate. It, well, it fit her. It supernaturally molded to her form, making space for her carapace, shaping itself to her figure. But it was more than that. To Venli, some of the war forms seemed like they were playing pretend. Their faces didn't match their new shape. Not Eshonai. Eshonai looked like a soldier, with a wider neck, 
powerful jaw and head, and enormous hands. Venley regretted encouraging Eshenai to visit the former shard bearer. She hadn't expected that years later, she'd feel dwarfed by her sister. Though much about Venley's life was enviable now, she had position, friends, and responsibility. There was a part of her that wished she'd been able to obtain this, without Eshenai also gaining high station. What? Venley asked to irritation. I have work to do today, Eshenai, and- It's mother, Eshenai said. Venley immediately attuned the terrors. What about her? What's wrong? Eshenai attuned resolve and led Venley quietly to their mother's home on the outskirts of town. A small structure, but solitary, with plenty of room for gardening projects. Their mother wasn't in the garden, working on her shale bark. She was inside, lying on a hard cot, her head wrapped in a bandage. One of Venley's scholars, Mackheim, who was their surgeon, stepped away from the cot. It's not bad, she said. Head wounds can be frightful, but it was little more than a scrape. The bigger worry is how afraid she was. I gave her something to help her sleep. Venley hummed to appreciation, and Mikheim withdrew. Eshenai stood opposite Venley over the cot, her helmet under her arm, and for a time the two of them hummed together to the lost, a rare moment when they both heard the same rhythm. Do you know what happened? Venley finally asked. She was found wandering one of the outer plateaus, frightened, acting like a little child. She didn't respond to her own name at first, though by the time she got here, she had recovered enough to begin answering questions about her childhood. She didn't remember how she hurt herself. Venley breathed deeply and listened to the haunting rhythm of the lost, a violent beat with staccato notes. We might need to confine her to her house, Eshenai said. No, Venley said. Never. We can't do that to her, Eshenai. Imprisonment on top of her ailment? Eshenai attuned reconciliation, settling down on the floor, her shard plate scraping softly. You're right, of course. She must be allowed to see the sky, look to the horizon. We can get her a servant, perhaps, someone to keep watch over her. An acceptable accommodation, Venley said, lingering beside the cot. She really should check on her scholars. Eshenai leaned, gingerly because her plate was so heavy, against the wall. She closed her eyes, humming to peace. It was forced, a little loud. She was trying to override other rhythms. She looks more like herself, sitting like that, Venley thought idly, remembering Eshonai as a child, the sister who would pick Venley up when she scraped her knee, or who would chase Kremlings with her. Eshonai had always seemed so vibrant, so alive, as if she'd been trying to burst out, her soul straining against the confines of a flawed body. You always led me toward the horizon. Venley found herself saying, even as children, always running to the next hill to see what was on the other side. Would that we could return, Eshenai said to the lost. To those ignorant days, 
to that joy, that innocence. Innocence is more false a god than the ones in our songs, Venley said, sitting beside her sister. People who chase it will find themselves enslaved. Venley felt tired, she realized. She'd been spending far too many nights thinking of plans, and it would only get worse, as she needed to start going out into storms to trap Stormspren. I'm sorry I brought us to this, Esh and I whispered to reconciliation. We've lost so many. How far will it go? All because I made a snap decision in a moment of tension. That's fear, Venli said. The one King Gavilar gave you. They'd all seen it, though it had faded several months later. Yes, a dark power, and he claimed to be seeking to return our gods. Ulam had been nervous about Gavilar's sphere. The little spren said Gavilar hadn't been working with him or any of Odium's agents. Indeed, he'd been hostile to them. So Ulam had no idea how he'd obtained Odium's light. Maybe, Venli said, if the humans are seeking to contact our gods, perhaps we should explore the option too. Perhaps the things from our songs are- Stop, Eshonai said to reprimand. Venli, what are you saying? You better than most should know the foolishness of what you say. I'm always a fool to you, aren't I? Venli attuned irritation. Unfortunately, this was the Eshonai she'd come to know. Not the child who encouraged her. The adult who held her back, ridiculed her. Sing the song with me, Eshonai said. Terrible and great they were, but- Please don't turn this into another lecture, Eshonai, Venli said. Just stop, all right? Eshonai trailed off, then hummed to reconciliation. The two of them sat for a time, the light outside dimming as the sun drifted toward the horizon. Venli found herself humming to reconciliation as well. She explored the rhythm, finding a complimentary tone to Eshonai's, seeking again for a brief moment to be in tune with her sister. Eshonai quietly changed to longing, and Venli followed. And then cautiously, Venli switched to joy. Eshonai followed her this time. Together they made a song, and Venli began singing. It had been, well, years since she'd practiced the songs. She'd long ago stopped thinking of herself as the apprentice songkeeper. They had plenty of others to uphold their traditions, now that they'd united the families. She still remembered the songs, though. This was the Song of Mornings, a teaching song meant to train a young child for more complex rhythms and songs. There was something satisfying about a simple song you could sing well. You could add your own complexity. And you could sing the song's soul rather than struggle with missed lyrics or failed notes. She let her voice drift off at the end, and Eshonai's humming quieted. Dusk fell outside, the perfectly wrong time for the song of mornings. 
She loved that it had worked so well, anyway. Thank you, Venli, Eshenai said. For all that you do, you don't get enough credit for having brought us these forms. Without Warform, we wouldn't stand a chance of resisting the humans. We'd probably be their slaves. I... Venli tried to attune confidence, but it slipped away from her. As long as you and Demid know what I did, I suppose it doesn't sting so much when others pass me over. Do you think you could find me a different form? Eshenai said. A form that would let me talk better, more diplomatically? I could go to the humans and explain what happened. Maybe I could speak with Dalinar Colin. I feel like, like he might listen if I could find him. If I could make my tongue work. They don't hear the rhythms, and it's so difficult to explain to them. I can try, Venli said, pleading sounding in her ears. Why pleading? She hadn't attuned that. Then, maybe, I could talk to you, Eshenai said quietly, drooping from fatigue. Without sounding like I'm trying to lecture. You'd know how I really feel. Mother would understand that I don't try to run away. I just want to see. You'll see it someday, Venley promised. You'll see the whole world. Every vibrant color, every singing wind, every land and people. Esh and I didn't respond. I... I've been doing things you might not like, Venli whispered. I should tell you. You'll explain that what I'm doing is wrong, though, and you're always right. That's part of what I hate about you. But her sister had already drifted off. The stiff shard plate kept her in a seated position, slumped against the wall, breathing softly. Venli climbed to her feet and left. That night, she went into the storm to hunt Stormspren for the first time. 87. Trial by Witness Maybe if I remembered my life, I'd be capable of being confident like I once was. Maybe I'd stop vacillating when even the most simple of decisions is presented to me. The weather turned energetic by the time Adolin's trial arrived. The honor spren he passed chatted more and seemed to have more of a spring to their steps as they flowed toward the forum on the southern plain of lasting integrity. He couldn't feel the weather, though Blended said it was like a faint drumming in the back of her mind, upbeat and peppy. Indeed, the ink spren seemed chattier. He felt more nervous than at his first ranked duel, and far less prepared. Legal terms, strategies, even the details of his political training all seemed distant as he walked down the steps to the amphitheater floor. As Blended had feared, the place was packed with honor spren. Many wore uniforms or other formal attire, though some wore loose flowing outfits that trailed behind them as they walked. These seemed more free-spirited. Perhaps their presence would help the crowd turn to his side. Blended said that was important. 
The high judge, being who he was, would likely listen to the mood of the crowd and judge accordingly. Adolin wished someone had explained to him earlier how fickle his judge would be. That might favor Adolin, fortunately. He could depend on some level of erratic behavior from Kalek, whereas the honor spren were basically all against him from the start. They didn't boo as he reached the floor of the forum. They had too much decorum. They hushed instead. He found Shallan seated next to Pattern, over on the left side. She pumped her fist toward him, and he had the impression she was radiant at the moment. Kalak sat upon a throne-like seat with a bench before it, both built in among the forum's tiers. The herald seemed imposing, and Adolin was reminded that, despite the man's odd behavior, Kalak was thousands of years old. Perhaps he would listen. All right, all right, Kalak said. Human, get over there on the podium and stand there until this show finishes and we can execute you. Holy one, an honest friend said from his side. We do not execute people. What else are you going to do, Kalak said. You don't have prisons and I doubt he'll care if you exile him. Hell, half the people in this place would regard escaping your presence to be a reward. We are building a proper holding cell, the honest friend said, looking toward Adolin, so he can be kept healthy and on display for years to come. Wonderful, Adolin thought, stepping into the place indicated. The consequences of failure, however, had always been far bigger than his own life. The war needed radiance, and radiance needed spren. If Adolin failed, it meant leaving thousands of troops to die without proper support. He needed to stand here tall and confident and win this challenge. Somehow. He turned to face the crowd. According to Blended, today would be the worst of the days. Three witnesses against him. Tomorrow, he'd get to have his say. Very well, Kalek said. I suppose you need to give trial terms, Sekir. The bearded honor sprang stood up. Indeed, honored one. Make it fast, Kalek said. Adolin took a moment of enjoyment from the affronted way Sekir received that injunction. The honor spren had likely planned a lengthy speech. As you wish, honored one, Sekir said. Today we enter a trial as demanded by this human, Adolin Colin, to determine if he can bear the sins of the recreants where men killed their spren. Since this event happened, which no one disputes, then we must simply prove that we are wise to stay away from all humans as a result. All right, then, Kalek said. Human, this works for you. Not exactly, honored one, Adolin said, using the opening statement Blended had helped him prepare. I did not agree to be tried for my ancestors. I agreed to be tried for myself. I told the Honestbrun I personally bear no blame for what humans did in the past. Because of that, I contend that the Honestbrun are acting dishonorably by ignoring my people's pleas for help. Kalek rubbed his forehead. So we're arguing over even the definitions? This doesn't bode well. There is no argument, Sakir said. 
Honored one, he says he wishes to bear no sins of his ancestors, and we should instead prove why he specifically can't be trusted. But the recreance is a large portion of why we cannot trust his kind. We set the terms when he entered. He would have to stand trial for all humankind. He can dissemble if he wishes, but he did enter our fortress and therefore agreed to our terms. Collect grunted. That makes sense. Human, you're going to have to stand trial as he wishes. That said, I'll keep your arguments in mind when I finally judge. I suppose I must agree, Adolin said. Blended had warned him not to push too hard here. So, trial by witness, right? Kalek said. I'm to listen to the arguments presented and decide. Either the honor's brand are being selfish, denying honor, and I should command them to go to the battlefield, or I decide they've been wise, that humans are not worthy of trust, and we throw this man in a prison as an example? Yes, honored one, Sekir said. Great, Kalek said. I assume you had no lack of volunteers, Sekir. Who is first? Amuna, said the honest Bren. Come and bear your witness. The audience whispered quietly as a female Spren rose from her spot on the front row. She wore a warrior's pleated skirt and a stiff shirt. She was slender and willowy, and when she stepped, she was as graceful as a leaf in the wind. Adolin recognized her. This was the Spren to whom he'd been forced to surrender Maya on their first day in lasting integrity. He'd occasionally seen Amuna again during his daily visits to Maya. The two honor Spren sitting beside her bore ragged clothing and scratched-out eyes like Maya's. On a glowing honor Spren's face, the scratches made a stark contrast. You all know me, said the Spren in the pleated skirt so I will speak for the benefit of the High Prince Adolin. I am Amuna, and my duty is to care for the dead eyes in lasting integrity. We take their care very seriously. And the ones watching outside? Adolin asked. He was allowed to talk during testimonies, though Blended had warned him to be careful. If he was too belligerent, the High Judge could order him gagged and he had to be careful not to address the audience in a way that invited them to interrogate him. We cannot accept them all, unfortunately, Amuna said. We had not thought to see so many. We have tried to invite in all of the honors, Bren, dead eyes. Are there many? Adolin asked. In total, we have some twenty dead-eyed honors, Bren, in the fortress now though there were some two thousand honors spren alive at the time of your betrayal. A single one survived. Sill, Adolin said. The ancient daughter was in a catatonic state, Amuna said, and was spared. But every other honor spren, every single one, had answered the call of the Radiance during the false desolation. Can you understand the magnitude of that tragedy, High Prince Adolin? The murder of an entire species? All in one day? 
absolute extermination performed by the most intimate of friends? We often encounter dead-eyes wandering aimlessly in the barrens or standing in the shallows of the ocean. We bring them here, give them stormlight, care for them the best we can. Frequently, we can do only a little before they are summoned away to your world, where their corpses are used to continue your brutal murders. She turned, gesturing toward the two dead-eyes on the bench, and though she faced Adolin, her words were obviously for the crowd. They, not the high judge, were the true adjudicators. This is what you'd have us return to? she demanded. You say you aren't the same people who lived so long ago, but do you honestly think you're any better than them? I'd contend you are worse. You pillage and murder and burn. You spare no expense nor effort when given an opportunity to ruin another man's life. If the ancient radiance were not trustworthy, then how can you possibly say that you are? Murmurs of assent washed through the crowd. They didn't jeer or call as a human audience might. He'd suffered that during many a dueling bout. Blended had warned him not to say too much by way of a defense today, but they seemed to want something from him. Every man fails his own ideals, Adolin said. You are right. I am not the honorable man I wished that I were. But my father is. Can you deny that the Stormfather himself was willing to take a chance upon a man from this epoch? That is a good point, Kalek said, leaning forward. The Stormfather is all we have left of old Tanavast. I would not have thought to find his bondsmith again. No, indeed. Amuna spun toward Adolin. Do you know what would happen, Prince Adolin, if the Stormfather were to be killed? Adolin paused, then shook his head. A wise answer, she said, as no one knows. We were fortunate that no bondsmiths existed at the time of the recreants, though how the sibling knew to end their bond early is a matter of dispute. I can only imagine the catastrophe that awaits us when your father kills his spren. He won't. Adolin said. My father is no common man. Such could be said of all the radiance in times past, Amuna said, stepping toward him. But now I am the one who cares for the betrayed. I hear their voiceless sorrow. I see their sightless pain. I would have lasting integrity pulled down stone by stone before I agree to send a single honor spren to suffer a similar fate. She bowed to Kalek, then turned and sat between the two dead eyes. They continued to sit, faces forward, motionless. Adolin ground his teeth and glanced at Shalon for support. At least there was one friendly face out in that crowd. He forced himself to remain standing, hands clasped behind him in the posture his father used when he wanted to appear commanding. He'd worn his best coat, for all it mattered. Storms he felt exposed here on the floor, surrounded by all the glowing figures. This was worse than when he'd been alone in the dueling arena facing four shard-bearers. At least then he'd had his blade in hand and plate on his back. They waited for Collect to call the next witness. The high judge instead spent a good twenty minutes writing in his notebook. He was a divine being, like a kind of ardent, if magnified a thousand times. It wasn't surprising to see him writing. 
Adolin just hoped the notes he was taking related to the testimony. He half expected that the Herald was solving word puzzles like the ones Yasna enjoyed. Eventually, the Herald dug something out of his pocket. Fruit, it seemed, though it was bright green, and it crunched when Kalek took a bite. Looks good, Kalek said. Nothing too unexpected, though I have to say he does have a good point. An unchained bondsmith is dangerous, but the Stormfather did choose one anyway. You know how erratic the Stormfather has been lately, said an elderly female honor spren at Collect's side. His wisdom is no longer something to trust. Valid, valid, Collect said. Well then, next witness. Next to speak will be blended, Sekir said. Inkspren emissary to lasting integrity. What? Adolin thought as his tutor stood up from the crowd and walked to the floor of the arena. The watching honorspren murmured together quietly at the sight. Wait, Adolin said. What is this? They asked me to witness against you, she said. So a spren who is not an honorspren would have a chance to weigh in on this proceeding. But you're my tutor. Didn't you volunteer to train me? I wanted you well trained, she said so the trial could be as fair as possible. The thing is, but my hatred of what your kind did also is. She turned to Kalek. Honored one, I was alive when men betrayed us. Unlike the honor spren, my kind were not so foolish as to assign all as radiant spren. We lost over half our numbers, but some of us watched from outside. She eyed Adolin. We knew men as they were and are, untrustworthy, changeable. Spren find it difficult to break a bond. Some say it is impossible for us. Men, however, barely last a day without betraying some ideal. Why should we beings of innate honor have been surprised when the event happened? It is not the fault of men that they are as fickle as the falling rain. The thing is, they should not be trusted and the shame of doing so is our fault. Never again should Spren and men bond. It is unnatural. Unnatural, Adolin said. Spren and sky eels bond to fly. Spren and great shells bond to grow. Spren and singers bond to create new forms. This is as natural as the changing seasons. And thank you, Shalon, he thought, glancing at her, for your interest in all this. Humans are not from this land, Blended said. You are invaders, and bonds with you are not natural. Be careful what you say. You will encourage us to return to the singers. They betrayed us long ago, but never on the scale of the humans. Perhaps the High Spren have the correct idea in joining with the armies of the Fused. You'd side with them, Adolin said. Our enemies? Why not? she said, strolling across the stage. They are the rightful heirs of this land. They have been pushed to desperation by your kind, but they are no less reasonable or logical. Perhaps your kind would do better to acknowledge their rule. They serve odium, Adolin said, noticing many of the honor spren shifting in their seats uncomfortable. Men might be changeable, yes. We might be corrupt at times and weak always. But I know evil when I see it. 
Odium is evil. I will never serve him. Blended eyed the crowd, who nodded at Adolin's words. She gave him a little nod herself, as if in acknowledgment of a point earned. This tangent is irrelevant, she said, turning to Kalek. I can say with some ease that a good relationship between Honorspren and Inkspren is not. Any would acknowledge this? My testimony's value is, then, of extra import. I lived through the pain and chaos of the recreants. I saw my siblings, beloved, dead. I saw families ripped apart and pain flowing like blood. We might be enemies, but in one thing, unification is. Men should never again be trusted with our bonds. If this one wishes to accept punishment for the thousands who escaped it, I say let him. Lock him away. Be done with him and any who, like him, wish to repeat the massacre of the past. She looked directly at Adolin. This truth is. Adolin felt at a loss to say anything. What defense could he offer? We are not the same as the ones before, he said. Can you promise you will be different? she demanded. Absolutely promise it. Promise that no further spren will be killed from bonds if allowed to be. Of course not, Adolin said. Well, I can promise that none will die so long as no more bonds are made. The solution is easy. She turned and walked back to her place. Adolin looked to Kalek. There are no promises in life. Nothing is sure. She says Spren won't die without bonds. But can you say what will happen if Odium reigns? I find it most curious she'd prefer that possibility, young man, Kalek said. He started writing in his notebook again. But it is seriously damning of you that an ink spren would be willing to testify alongside an honor spren. Damning indeed. Kalek took another bite of his fruit, leaving only the core, which he absently set on the table in front of him. Frustrated, Adolin forced himself to calm. The trial was proceeding well on at least one axis. The honor spren weren't trying to force the actual sins of the recreants on him. They were taking a more honorable approach of proving that men hadn't changed, and bonds were too risky. Blended and he had decided this tactic was safer for Adolin. Kalek could very well decide that there was no reason to imprison him for things the ancients did. At the same time, Adolin was losing the hearts of the watching Spren. What did it matter if he won the trial, if the Spren were even more strongly convinced they shouldn't help in the conflict? He searched the crowd, but found mostly resentful expressions. Storms. Did he really think he could prove anything to them? Which of the ten fools was he for starting all this? No, I'm not a fool, he told himself. Just an optimist. How can they not see? How can they sit here and judge me when men are dying and other spren fight? The same way he realized that the high princes had spent so long playing games with the lives of soldiers on the shattered plains. The same way any man could turn his back on an atrocity if he could persuade himself it wasn't his business. Men and spren were not different. Blended had tried to tell him this, and now he saw it firsthand. 
The third and final witness, the honest beneficiator said, is Notum, once captain of the ship Honor's Path. Adolin felt his stomach turn as Notum, looking much improved from the last time Adolin had seen him, emerged from the top of the forum where a group of standing honor spren had obscured him from Adolin's view. Still, Adolin was shocked. Notum had been forbidden to enter lasting integrity despite his wounds, and had stayed with the others outside the walls, though the honor spren of the tower had delivered him some stormlight to aid in his healing. Messages from Gudeki had indicated that Notum had eventually returned to patrol. Now he was here, and in uniform, which was telling. He also wouldn't meet Adolin's eyes as he stepped down onto the floor of the forum. Spren might claim the moral high ground. They claimed to be made of honor. But they also defined honor themselves. As men did. Offered to end your exile, did they, Notum? Adolin asked softly. In exchange for a little backstabbing? Notum continued to avoid his gaze, instead bowing to collect, then unfolding a sheet of paper from his pocket. He began to read. I have been asked, he said, to relate the erratic behavior I witnessed in this man and his companions. As many of you know, I first encountered this group when they fled the fused in Celebrant over one year ago. They used subterfuge to— Notum trailed off and looked toward Adolin. Give him father's stare, Adolin thought, the stern one that made you want to shrivel up inside, thinking of everything you'd done wrong, a general's stare. Adolin had never been good at that stare. Go ahead he said instead. We got you into trouble, Notum. It's only fair that you get a chance to tell your side. I can't ask anything of you other than honesty. I... Notum met his eyes. Go on. Notum lowered his sheet, then said in a loud voice, Honor is not dead, so long as he lives in the hearts of men. Adolin had never heard the statement before, but it seemed a trigger to the Honorspren crowd, who began standing up and shouting in outrage, or even in support. Adolin stepped back amazed by the sudden burst of emotion from the normally stoic Spren. Several officials rushed the floor of the forum, pulling Notum away as he bellowed the words, Honor is not dead, so long as he lives in the hearts of men. Honor is not— They dragged him out of the forum, but the commotion continued. Adolin put his hand on his sword, uncertain. Would this turn ugly? Kalek shrank down in his seat, looking panicked as he put his hands to his ears. He let out a low whine, pathetic and piteous, and began to shake. The honorspren near him called for order among the crowd, shouting that they were causing pain to the Holy One. Many seemed outraged at Notum's words, but a sizable number took up his cry, and these were pushed physically out of the forum. There was a tension to this society Adolin hadn't seen before. The honor spren were no monolith. Disagreements and tensions swam in deep waters here, far below the surface, but still powerful. The officiators cleared the forum. Even Shalon and Pattern were forced out. Everyone basically ignored Adolin. As the place finally settled down, and only a few officials remained, 
Adolin walked up the few forum steps to the high judge's seat. Kalek lounged in his seat, ignoring the fact that he'd been curled up on the floor trembling mere moments earlier. What was that? Adolin asked him. Hmm? Kalek said. Oh, nothing of note. An old spren argument. Your coming has opened centuries-old wounds, young man. Amusing, isn't it? Amusing? That's all? Kalek started whistling as he wrote in his notebook. They're all insane, Adolin thought. Ash said so. This is what thousands of years of torture does to a mind. Perhaps it was best not to push on the raw wound. That went well for me today, wouldn't you say? Adolin asked him. Hmm? Kalek said. One witness could not refute my point about my father, Adolin said. Another made my argument for me by pointing out that siding against the Radiance is practically serving odium. Then Notum put his honor before his own well-being. It went well for me. Does it matter? Kalek asked. Of course it does. That's why I'm here. I see, Kalek said. Did the ancient Radiance betray their spren, killing them? Well, yes, Adolin said, but that's not the question. The question is whether modern humans can be blamed. Kalek continued writing. Honored one? Adolin asked. Do you know how old I am, young man? Kalek looked up and met Adolin's eyes, and there was something in them. A depth that made him for the first time seem distinctly inhuman. Those eyes seemed like eternal holes, bored through time. I, Kalek said softly, have known many, many men. I've known some of the best who ever lived. They are now broken or dead. The best of us inevitably cracked. Storms, I ran when the return came this time because I knew what it meant. Even Tarn. Even Tarn. He didn't break, Adolin said. The enemy is here, so he did, Kalek said firmly. He waved toward the honor spren. They deserve better than you, son. They deserve better than me. I could never judge them for refusing to bond men. How could I? I could never order them back into that war, back into that hole. To do so would be to, to abandon what little honor I have left. Adolin took a deep breath. Then he nodded. I just told you that your cause is hopeless, Kalek said, turning to his writing. You do not seem concerned. Well, honored one, Adolin said, I agreed to this trial, even with Sekir's insistence I be blamed for what my ancestors did, because it was the only way to get a chance to talk to the honor spren. Maybe you will judge against me, but so long as I get a chance to have my say, then that will be enough. If I persuade even one or two to join the battle, I'll have one. Optimism, Kalek said. Hope. I remember those things. But I don't think you understand the stakes of this trial, child. Nor do you understand what you've stumbled into. The things that Inkspren said about joining Odium's side, 
are on the minds of many Spren, including many in this very fortress. That hit Adolin like a gut punch. Honor Spren would join the enemy, Adolin said. That would make them no better than the High Spren. Indeed. I suspect their dislike of High Spren is part of why they hesitate. The Honor Spren in favor of joining the enemy worried how such a suggestion would be received. But here you are, giving them a chance to make their arguments, acting as a magnet for all of their frustration and hatred. Many are listening. If Honor Spren start joining the enemy, well, many other varieties of Spren would soon follow. I dare think they'd go in large numbers. Collect didn't look up. You came here to recruit, but I suspect you will end up tipping these finely balanced scales and not in the direction you desire. About an hour after the first stage of the trial, an hour she'd spent consoling Aderlin in his sudden terror that he would accidentally cause a mass defection of Spren to the side of the enemy, Shallan climbed a tree. She stretched high, clinging to a branch near the top. It was a normal tree, one of the real ones the honor Spren managed to grow here. It felt good to feel bark beneath her fingers. She reached with one arm into the open space above the tree, but couldn't feel anything different. Had she hit the barrier yet? Maybe a little farther. She shimmied a little higher, then reached out, and thought she felt an oddity as she got exactly high enough, an invisible tugging on the tips of her fingers. Then her foot slipped. In a second, she was tumbling through the air. She didn't fall all the way to the base of the structure, merely to the floor of her plane. She hit with a loud crack, then lay dazed before letting out a loud groan. Lucintia the honor spren was at her side a moment later. As I suspected, Vale thought. She always seems to be nearby. She'd clearly been assigned to watch Shalon. Human, she said, her short hair hanging along the sides of her white-blue face. Human, are you hurt? Shalon groaned, blinking. Mmm, Pattern said, stepping over. Rapid eye blinks. This is serious. She could die. Die, Lucintia said. I had no idea they were so fragile. That was a long fall, Pattern said. Ah, uh, and she hit her head when she landed on the stones here. Not good, not good. Other honor spren were gathering, muttering to themselves. Shallan groaned again, then tried to focus on Pattern and Lucentia, but let her eyes slip shut. We must act quickly, Pattern said. Quickly. What do we do? Lucentia said. You have no hospital here? Of course we don't have a hospital, Lucentia said. There are only a couple dozen humans here. Mmm. But you won't let them come back in if they leave, so they are basically caged here. You should feel bad, very bad, yes. Storms, Vale thought. Is that the best he can do? 
How did we ever let him fool us? Tell me what to do, Lucentia said. Do we carry her out to that edge dancer? It will take too long. She will die. Poor human, whom I love very much. It will be tragic for her to die here, in the center of honor, spren, power, and protection. Unless, of course, she were to be given stormlight. Wait, stormlight? Yes, she is radiant, Pattern said. It would heal her. Shallan suppressed a smile. Pattern was a tad transparent, but the honor spren here plainly had little experience with humans. They swallowed the bait without question, and soon Shallan was being carried by a team of four. She tucked away the piece of cloth-wrapped stone she'd used to smack the ground as she landed, giving the impression that she'd hit her head. In reality, her arm did ache. She'd undoubtedly bruised it when she hit, though this wasn't the worst self-inflicted wound she'd sustained in the name of science. At least this time, her scheme hadn't involved deliberately embarrassing herself in front of several attractive men. She made sure to groan occasionally, and Pattern kept exclaiming how worried he was. That kept Lucentia and the other honor spren motivated as they hauled Shallan to a specific building, their footfalls echoing against enclosing stone. They had a hushed but urgent conversation with a guard. Shallan made a particularly poignant whimper of pain at exactly the right moment, and then she was in. Light surrounded her as she was brought someplace brilliant. They hadn't let her in here last time, when they retrieved Stormlight for Adolin's healing. She let her eyes flutter open and found that most of the Stormlight was contained in a large construction at the center of the room, a kind of vat or tall jar. This was technology Shallan hadn't heard of before coming to Shadesmar, and apparently not even the honor spren knew how it worked. They could be purchased from a group of strange traveling merchants called the Iri. Shelves nearby held a collection of loose gemstones, each glowing brightly. The wealth of lasting integrity, gemstones, gathered over millennia, so flawless, so perfect that they didn't leak. She'd been told a gemstone like this could, with repeated exposures to storms, absorb far more stormlight than its size should be able to contain. She tested this, reaching out with a weak hand toward one of them and sucking in a breath of stormlight, which streamed to her as a glowing misty white light. She immediately felt better invigorated, alert. Storms, how she'd missed that. Simply holding Stormlight was stimulating. She grinned, not part of the act, then decided to leap to her feet. The ache in her arm vanished. She felt like dancing with joy. Instead, she let Vale take over. This next part needed her. Shallan remained the better actress, but Vale was better at most other espionage skills. Vale made a show of touching her head where she'd been wounded. What happened? She asked. I don't remember. I was trying to see if I could reach the barrier where the gravity of the plane ran out. You were very foolish, human, 
Lucentia said. You are so fragile. How could you endanger yourself in such a manner? Do you not realize that mortals die if broken? It was in the name of science, Vale said, reaching to her waist where she'd secured her notebook before climbing. She yanked it out and dropped it in a flurry. At the same time, she swept her safe hand to the side and dropped a dun emerald in place of a brightly glowing one. The sleight of hand, performed hundreds of times beneath Tin's watch, then perfected on her own, was covered as she stumbled and brushed the shelf, disturbing the many gems and shaking their light. She was able to slip the stolen emerald into her black leather glove. This all happened in the moment the honor spren focused on her falling notebook. Vale quickly snatched it off the ground and held it to her chest, grinning sheepishly. Thank you, she said. You saved my life. We would not have you die, Lucentia said. Death is a terrible thing, and we- She trailed off, looking at the shelf and the dun emerald it now contained. Storms alight. You ate the entire thing? Human, how? Another spren, an angry male in uniform, began shoving Shalon out. That was years worth of stored stormlight, he exclaimed. Get out, go, before you eat anything more. If you fall again, I will have you turned away. Vale smothered her grin, apologizing as she stumbled out and met Pattern outside. An embarrassed Lucentia was forced to stay behind and fill out a report on the incident. Mmm, Pattern said. Thank you for letting me lie. Did it work? Vale nodded. Mmm, they are stupid. Stupidity and ignorance are not the same thing, Vale said. They're just unaccustomed to both humans and subterfuge. Come on, let's make ourselves scarce before someone thinks to search me. 88. Falling Star. A year and a half ago. A banging came on the door, and Esh and I pulled it open and stared out into a tempest. Grand lightning flashes shattered the blackness in brief emotional bouts, revealing Venli, her eyes wide, grinning and soaked, clutching something in two hands before her. She stumbled into the room trailing water, which caused their mother to chide her. Jack Slim was in one of her episodes, where she saw the two of them as children. Venli, seemingly oblivious to anything other than the gemstone, wandered past their mother. She rubbed her thumb on the gemstone, which was about a third the size of her fist. Storms, Esh and I said, pushing the door closed. You did it? She set the beam in place, then left it rattling in the wind as she stepped over to Venley. But no, the gemstone wasn't glowing. Was it? Esh and I leaned closer. It was glowing, but barely. It worked, Venley whispered to awe, clutching the stone. It finally worked. The secret is lightning, Eshonai. It pulls them through. When I drew close enough right after a strike, I found hundreds of them. I snagged this one before the others returned to the other side. The other side? Eshonai asked. 
Venley didn't respond. She seemed like a different person lately, always exhausted from working long nights and from her insistence on going out in each and every storm to try to capture a storm spren. And now this. Venley cradled the gemstone, ignoring the water streaming from her clothing. Venley, Eshonai said, if you want my help in bringing this to the five, you will need to let me see what you've done. Venley stared at her, quiet, no rhythm at all. Then she stood tall and hummed to confidence, proffering the gemstone. Eshonai attuned curiosity and took it. Yes, it did have a spren inside, though it glowed with an odd light. Too dark, almost dusty, smoky. It was difficult to tell its color through the green of the emerald. But it seemed shadowed, like lightning deep within the clouds. This spren is unlike any I've ever seen, Eshonai said. Storm form, Venli whispered. Power, dangerous power. This could destroy the listeners. Eshonai, Venli said to reprimand. Our people are already being destroyed. Don't you think that this time, instead of making a snap decision based on songs from thousands of years ago, we should at least try a different solution? Rumbling thunder outside seemed to agree with Venli's words. Eshonai handed the gemstone back, then hummed to betrayal to indicate what she thought of Venli's argument. But the rhythm didn't express how deeply the words cut. Turning her back on her sister, Eshonai walked to the door again and threw aside the bar, ignoring both Venli and her mother as they cried objections. Eshonai stepped out into the storm. The wind hit her hard, but in Warform's armor, she barely felt the icy raindrops. She stood in the light spilling from the door until Venli pushed it closed, plunging Eshonai into darkness. She attuned the rhythm of winds and started walking. Humans feared the storms. They always hid indoors. Eshonai respected the storms and usually preferred to meet them with a storm shield, but she did not fear them. She walked away from her mother's house, eastward into the wind. These days, her life had constantly been against the wind. It blew so hard, she barely felt she was making progress. Maybe she'd have been better off letting it steer her. If she hadn't fought so much, if she hadn't spent so much time thinking about her explorations or her dreams, would she have settled into her role as general faster? If she'd doubled down on her raids at the start, would she have been able to shove the humans out of the war camps before they got a foothold? Like a rock bud, humans were. Soft at first, but capable of gripping onto the stone and growing into something practically immovable. In this, despite their lack of rhythms, they belonged to Roshar better than the listeners did. If she could truly travel the world, would she find them growing in every crevice? She neared the edge of the plateau that made up the central heart of Narak, the city of exile. She walked carefully, letting flashes of lightning guide her way. She stepped right up to the edge of the chasm, facing into the wind. What do you want from us? She shouted. Answer me, rider, 
Spren of the storm? You're a traitor like us, aren't you? Is that why you sent Venli those little spren? The wind blasted her, as if to push her off balance. Debris spun and sputtered in the wind, spiraling around her, the lightning making each piece seem frozen in the moment. A quick sequence of bolts struck nearby, and the thunder vibrated and rattled her carapace. Absolute darkness followed. At first, she thought maybe the rider of storms had chosen to appear to her. However, this darkness was ordinary. She could still feel the wind, rain, and debris. What kind of choice is this? She demanded. Either we let the humans destroy us, or we turn away from the one thing that defines us, the one value that matters. Darkness, rain, wind but no reply. What had she expected? An actual answer? Was this a prayer, then? Didn't make a lot of sense, considering that the very thing she resisted was a return to her people's old gods. Those gods had never deserved reverence. What was a god who only made demands? Nothing but a tyrant with a different name. Everything I've done, she said into the wind has been to ensure we remain our own people. That's all I want. I gave up my dreams, but I will not give up our minds. Brave words, useless words. They would have to take Venley's discovery to the five, and they would have to let her test it. Eshonai knew that as well as she knew the rhythm of peace. They couldn't reject a potential new form now. She turned to go then heard something. Rock? Scraping on rock? Was the plateau cracking? Though she could barely hear it, the noise must be quite loud to reach her over the den of the tempest. Eshenai stepped backward, but her footing seemed unsteady, and she didn't want to move without a flash of lightning to guide her. What if branching light flashed in the heavens far to the east, it lit the sky white, highlighting debris, illuminating the land around her. Everything except for an enormous shadow, silhouetted in front of her. Eshenai's breath caught, the rhythms froze in her head. That shape, sinuous, yet massive. Claws as thick as her body gripping the rim of the chasm mere feet in front of her. It couldn't be. Lightning flashed again, and she saw its face. A chasm-fiend snout with jagged swords for teeth, head cocked to the side to watch her. She didn't run. If it wanted her, she was already dead. Prey ran, and the beasts were known to play with things that acted like prey, even if they weren't hungry. Still, standing there in pitch darkness, not daring to attune a rhythm was the hardest thing she'd ever done. When the lightning next flashed, the chasm fiend had lowered its incredible head toward her, its eye close enough that she could have stabbed it without needing to lunge. Darkness fell. Then a small burst of light appeared directly ahead of her, a small spren made of white fire. It zipped forward, trailing an afterimage, like a falling star. It moved closer, 
then spun around her. By its light, she could see the chasm fiend slowly retreat into the chasm, its spike-like claws leaving scores on the stone. Her heart beating like thunder, Eshonaya tuned anxiety and hurried home. The strange little spren followed her. 89. Voice of Lights Instead, I think if I were to remember my life in detail, I would become even worse, paralyzed by my terrible actions. I should not like to remember all those I have failed. Days passed. Navani barely noticed. For the first time in her life, she let go completely. No worries about Dalinar or Yasna. No worries about the tower. No thoughts about the million other things she should be doing. This was what she should be doing. Or so she allowed herself to believe. She let herself be free. In her little room of a laboratory, everything fit together. She'd met scholars who claimed they needed chaos to function. Perhaps that was true for some, but in her experience, good science wasn't about sloppy inspiration. It was about meticulous incrementalization. With no distractions, she was able to draw precise experiments, charts, careful measurements, lines. Science was all about lines, about imposing order on chaos. Navani reveled in her careful preparations without anyone to tease her for keeping her charts so neat or for refusing to skip any steps. Sometimes Raboniel visited and joined in the research, writing her own musings alongside Navani's in their notebook. Two opposing forces in harmony, focused on a single goal. Raboniel gave her the strange black sand, explaining the difference between static and kinetic investiture. Navani observed and measured, learning for herself. The sand slowly turned white when exposed to stormlight or void light. However, if a fabrile was using the light, the sand changed faster. You could wet the sand to reset it to black, though it had to be dry again before it could turn white. It was a useful way to measure how much light a given fabrile was using. She noticed that it also changed colors in the presence of spren. This was a slow change too, but she could measure it. Anything you could measure was useful to science. But for these few blessed days, it seemed like time was not properly measurable. For hours passed like minutes, and Navani, despite the circumstances, found herself loving the experience. I don't know exactly where the sand comes from, Raboniel said settled on her stool beside the wall, flipping through Novani's latest set of charts. Off-world, somewhere. Off-world? Novani asked, looking up from the fabrile she'd been housing. As in, another planet? Raboniel hummed absently. A confirmation? Novani felt she could tell what this rhythm meant. I wanted to go, for years. Raboniel said, visit the place myself. Unfortunately, I learned it wasn't possible. 
I'm trapped in this system. My soul bound to braze, you call it damnation, a planet farther out in orbit around the sun. To hear her speak of such things so casually amazed Navani. Other worlds. The best telescopes couldn't do more than confirm the existence of other celestial bodies, but here she was, speaking to someone who had visited one of them. We came from another, Navani reminded herself. Humans, migrating to Roshar. It was so strange for her to think about, to align the mythos of the tranquiline halls with an actual location. Could I visit them? Navani asked. These other worlds? Likely, though I'd stay away from Braze. You'd have to get through the storm to travel there anyway. The Everstorm? Raboniel hummed to an amused rhythm. No, no, Navani. You can't travel to Braze in the physical realm. That would take, well, I have no idea how long. Plus, there's no air in the space between planets. We sent heavenly ones to try it once. No air. And worse, the strange pressures required them to carry a large supply of void light for healing. Even so prepared, they died within hours. One instead travels to other worlds through Shadesmar. But again, stay away from Braze. Even if you could get through the barrier storm, the place is barren, devoid of life. Merely a dark sky, endless wind-swept crags, and a broken landscape, and a lot of souls. A lot of not particularly sane souls. I'll remember that. Other worlds? It seemed too vast a concept for her to grasp right now. And that was saying something, as she was presently contemplating the death of a god. She turned to her experiment. Ready. Excellent, Raboniel said, closing the book. Mistla? Navani's storm-form guard entered the room, seeming somewhat annoyed, though that was common for him. Mistla was his singer name. He said the Alethi had called him Da a simple glyph instead of a true name, because it was easier to remember. Perhaps if she had lived her entire life called something because of its utility, Navani would have shared his disposition. She presented him with the fabrile, which was, well, not a true fabrile. The housing was a mere coil of copper wires around some gemstones. Raboniel knew a method of changing the polarity of a magnet, a process involving the lightning channeled from a storm form. Captive lightning seemed to have boundless potential applications, but Navani kept herself focused. Maybe the polarity swapping process would also work on gemstones filled with void light. Navani and Raboniel left the room, as the lightning could be unpredictable. Remember, Navani said on her way out, only a tiny release of energy. Don't melt the coils this time. I'm not an idiot, the regal said to her. Anymore. Outside, Navani glanced down the hallway, lined with boxes of equipment, some hiding her traps, toward the shield around the sibling. It seemed darker inside than before. 
She and Raboniel avoided the topic. Working closely together did not make them allies, and both recognized it. In fact, Navani had been trying to find a way to hide future discoveries from Raboniel, if she made any. Lightning flashed in the room, then Mistla called for them. They hurried in as he set the coiled-up fabrile on the desk. It was likely still hot to the touch, so Navani gave it a few minutes, despite wanting to rip the gemstones out immediately to inspect the results. I have noticed something in your journals, Raboniel said as the two of them waited. You often remark that you are not a scholar. Why? I've always been too busy to engage in true scholarship, ancient one, Navani said. Plus, I don't know that I have the mind for it. I'm not the genius my daughter is. So I've always seen it as my duty to grant patronage to true scholars, to publicize their creations, and see them properly encouraged. Raboniel hummed a rhythm, then picked up the fabril with the copper coiling it. The metal burned her fingers, but she healed from it. If you are not a scholar, Navani, she said, then I have never met one. I admit that I have trouble accepting that ancient one, though I'm pleased to have fooled you. Humility, Raboniel said. It's not a passion my kind often promote. Would it help you believe if I told you that you no longer have to use titles when speaking to me? Your discoveries so far are enough to recommend you as my equal. This seemed an uncommon privilege. It does help, Raboniel, Navani said. Thank you. Thanks need not be provided for something self-evident, Raboniel said, holding up the fabril. Are you ready? Navani nodded. Raboniel pulled the gemstones out from within the coil, then inspected them. The void light seems unchanged to me, she said. Navani hadn't expressly told Raboniel she was hunting for anti-void light. She shrouded her quest in many different kinds of experiments, like this one, where she explained she simply wanted to see if light responded to exposure to lightning. She suspected that Raboniel suspected, however, that Navani was at least still intrigued by the idea of anti-light. Navani sprinkled some of the black sand on the tabletop, then placed the gemstone in the center, measuring the strength of the investiture inside. But because the air didn't warp around this gemstone, she secretly knew her experiment had failed. This was not anti-void light. She made a note in her log. Another failed experiment. Raboniel hummed a rhythm. A regretful one? Yes, that was what it seemed to be. I should return to my duties she said, and Navani could pick out the same rhythm in her voice. The deepest ones are close to finding the final node. How? Navani asked. You know I can't tell you that, Navani. Though she had spoken of leaving, she remained sitting. I'm so tired of this war. So tired of capturing, killing, losing, dying. 
We should end it then. Not while Odium lives. You'd actually kill him? Navani asked. If you had the chance? Raboniel hummed, but looked away. That humming is embarrassment, Navani thought. She recognizes she's lied to me, at least by implication. She doesn't truly want to kill Odium. When you were hunting the opposite of void light, you didn't want to use it against him, Navani guessed. You teased me with the idea, but you have another purpose. You learned to read rhythms, Raboniel said, standing up. Or I simply understand logic. Navani stood and took Raboniel's hands. The fused allowed it. You don't have to kill the sibling. Let's find another path. I'm not killing the sibling, Raboniel said. I'm doing something worse. I'm unmaking the sibling. Then let's find another path. You think I haven't searched for one already? She removed her hands from Navani's, then picked up and proffered their notebook, the one where they logged their experiments. Rhythm of War, they called it. Odium and honor working together, if only for a short time. I've run some experiments on the conjoined rubies you created, the ones of different sizes, Raboniel said. I think you'll like the implications of what I've discovered. I wrote them in here earlier. This might make moving your enormous sky platforms easier. Raboniel, Navani said, taking the notebook. Negotiate with me. Help me. Let's join forces. Let's make a treaty, you and I, ignoring Odium. I'm sorry, the fused said. But the best chance we have of ending this war, barring a discovery between us, is for my kind to control your Thiru. I will finish my work with the sibling. Ultimately, we are still enemies. And I would not be where I am, able to contemplate a different solution if I were not fully willing to do what has been asked of me, regardless of the cost and regardless of the pain it causes. Navani steeled herself. I had not thought otherwise, Lady of Wishes, though it leaves me sorrowful. On a whim, she tried humming to the rhythm of war. It didn't work. The rhythm required two people in concert with one another. In return, however, Raboniel smiled. I would give you something, she said, then left. Confused, Navani sat at the table, feeling tired. These days of furious study were catching up to her. Had it been selfish to spend so much time pretending to be a scholar? Didn't Eurythiru beg for a queen? Yes, it would be wonderful to find a power to use against Odium, but... Did she really think she could solve such a complex problem? Navani tried to return to her experiments. After an hour, she conceded that the spark wasn't there. For all her talk of control and organization, she now found herself subject to the whims of emotion. She couldn't work because she didn't feel it. She would have called that nonsense, though of course not to their face if one of her scholars had told her something similar. 
She stood up abruptly, her chair clattering to the ground. She'd picked up a habit of pacing from Dalinar and found herself prowling back and forth in the small chamber. Eventually, Raboniel appeared in the doorway, accompanied by two nimble form singers. The fused waved, and the femaleans hurried into the room. They carried odd equipment, including two thin metal plates, perhaps a foot and a half square and a fraction of an inch thick, with some odd ridges and crenellations cut into them. The nimble forms attached them to Navani's desk with clamps, so the metal plates spread flat, one on each side, like additions to the desk's workspace. This is an ancient form of music among my kind, Raboniel said, a way to revel in the rhythms. As a gift, I have decided to share the songs with you. She gestured and hummed to the two young singers, who jumped to obey, each pulling out a long bow, like one might use on a stringed instrument. They drew these along the sides of the metal plates, and the metal began to vibrate with deep tones, though they had a rougher texture to them, full and resonant. Those are honors and odium's tones, Navani thought. Only these were the shifted versions that worked in harmony with one another. Raboniel stepped up beside Navani. In accompaniment to the two tones, she played a loud rhythm with two sticks on a small drum. The sequence of beats grew loud and stately, then soft and fast, alternating. It wasn't exactly the rhythm of war, but it was as close as music could likely get. It vibrated through Navani, loud and triumphant. They continued at it for an extended time before Raboniel called a stop, and the two young singers, sweating from the work of vigorously making the tones, quickly gathered the plates, unclamping them from the sides of the desk. Did you like it? Raboniel asked her. I did, Navani said. The tones were a terrible cacophony when combined, but somehow beautiful at the same time. Like the two of us? Raboniel asked. Like the two of us. By this music, Raboniel said. I give you the title Voice of Lights, Navani Colin, as is my right. Raboniel hummed curtly, then bowed to Navani. With no other words, she waved for the singers to take their equipment and go. Raboniel retreated with them. Feeling overwhelmed, Navani walked up to the open notebook on her desk. Inside, Raboniel had written about their experiments in the women's script, and her handwriting was growing quite practiced. Navani understood the honor in what she'd just been given. At the same time, she found it difficult to feel proud. What did a title or the respect of one of the fused mean? If the tower was still being corrupted, her people still dominated. This is why I worked so hard these last few days, Navani admitted to herself, sitting at the desk. To prove myself to her. But what good was that if it didn't lead to peace? The rhythm of war vibrated through her, proof that there could be harmony. At the same time, 
The nearly clashing tones told another story. Harmony could be reached, but it was exceedingly difficult. What kind of emulsifier could you use with people to make them mix? She closed the notebook, then made her way to the back of the room and rested her hand on the sibling's crystal vein. I have tried to find a way to merge Spren who were split by Fabrial creation, she whispered. I thought it might please you. No response came. Please, Navani said, closing her eyes and resting her forehead against the wall. Please forgive me. We need you. I. The voice came into her mind, making Navani look up. She couldn't see the spark of the sibling's light in the vein, however. Either it wasn't there, or it had grown too dim to see in the light of the room. Sibling, she asked. I am cold, the voice said, small, almost imperceptible. They are killing, killing me. Raboniel said she is unmaking you. If that is true, I, I will, I will die. Spren can't die, Navani said. Gods can die, fused can, can die, spren can die. If I am made into someone else, that is death. It is dark. The singer you promised me, though, I can see him sometimes. I like watching him. He is with the radiance. He would have made a good, a good bond. Then bond him, Navani said. Can't, can't see, can't act through the barrier. What if I brought you stormlight, Navani said. Infused you the same way they've been infusing you with void light. Would that slow the process? Cold, they listen. I'm afraid, Navani, sibling. I don't want. To die. And then silence. Navani was left with that haunting word, die, echoing in her mind. At the moment, the sibling's fear seemed far more powerful than the rhythm of war. Navani had to do something, something more than sitting around daydreaming. She stalked back to her desk to write down ideas, any ideas, no matter how silly, about what she could do to help. But as she sat, she noticed something. Her previous experiment rested there, mostly forgotten. A gemstone amid sand. When the singers had set up their plates, they hadn't disturbed Navani's work. The music of the plates had caused the entire desktop to vibrate. And that had made the sand vibrate and it had therefore made patterns on her desktop. One pattern on the right, a different on the left, and a third, where the two mixed. Stormlight and void light weren't merely types of illumination. They weren't merely strange kinds of fluid. They were sounds, vibrations, and in vibration, she'd find their opposites.